The, the, first, the first cover was John Lennon, if I, if I now, because I'm a fan of yours and I'm a, kind of a student, but the, the, the first one was John Lennon, was it How I Won the War? How I Won the War. He was, in a, he was dressed movie. in a, yeah, and he was in a movie, so that's the cover, you got John Lennon for the first cover, this must have sold a million copies. It sold seven, we shipped 40,000 copies wow. that issue, we got 35,000 back in unopened boxes. But so really 5, smart. Copies. If you had been there, you would have sold a million. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that had, I mean, that's cool to get John Lennon to be the first cover. Well, it was, in truth, it was the cheapest. It was the only publicity still I could find. I mean, we started with nothing. So yeah. our choices were limited to what record companies would give us free or movies would give us free. And that was the best of the free ones. Yeah. Now, then we did, went on and he did many covers after that. Yeah, of course he did, yeah. This week's one there was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. Well, we got a little bit of news this week. Well, first off, Ringo's tour is going on. He's back out on the road again, and he'll be on the road for about six weeks through the summer. And then he's also going to do another six weeks in the fall. Good old Ringo Star time. But what we've learned, what he announced, is that he actually has two more EPs in the works. <laughs> That man is not going to stop working. <laughs> well, I mean, that's good. He's It keeps him vital. It keeps him young. Well, for sure. And, and keeps McCartney on his toes. <laughs> well, well, there's that as well. The first of these is a little bit more in line with the EPs he's been giving us. Linda Perry has written two new songs for Ringo. So what Ringo says is, we got to know each other and I love her and she's just great. She said, oh, Ringo, let me do it. So I said, okay, you do it. So the only thing I'll be doing on that EP is playing drums and singing. What else do you need to do, really? I mean, he's not the guitarist. <laughs> I'm kind of glad for that because Ringo has been doing all of his production really for the last couple of years. And I've mentioned it when we've talked about some of Ringo's latest releases, he tends to go a little bit heavy on the auto-tune, and hopefully Linda Perry will have a slightly lighter hand with that. Maybe. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of people who just don't mind that at all. I don't know if it's a don't mind it or if it's just, oh, okay, fine, whatever. It is definitely audible on there, and... Everybody takes notice of it, you know, and, and again, maybe that's just, I'm getting old, so. That was my next line. <laughs> We're just getting old because the people who are growing up with it don't really care. You know, they use it as a tool. Well, I mean, that's the same thing we were saying about, you know, where is this AI stuff going? Yep. So. All right. And then the second EP, uh, what he says is, out of the blue, I asked another guy to help us out. I got to meet and work with people I've never worked with, which I've always found exciting. I asked T-Bone, that's T-Bone Burnett, if he's got any time and he wants to do it. Well, he did want to do it, and he sent me, I promise you, one of the most beautiful country tracks I've heard in a long time. It's a very old school country. It's beautiful. So I'm going to do a country EP. That's great. I really like that. T-Bone has a, a sense of country that's not your standard ranch trash. You know, it's, it's really usually pretty unique. He, he understands the roots of country. Yeah. If 
You've never heard the album from his former wife, Sam Phillips. No, not Elvis as Sam Phillips, but uh, he used to be married to an artist named Sam Phillips. And she had a number of really, really nice albums, the best of which is probably uh, Martinis and Bikinis. Right. And he produced Robert Plant and Alison Krauss's two albums. They're both great. He is certainly a country-oriented artist, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he came up with for Ringo and where this thing is going to go. Yep. Okay, second off, the film Midas Man, the Brian Epstein biopic, is back in production, and the British press was filled with photos of their fake Beatles. (laughs) It's like... This guy looks like John Lennon. It's like, well, no, not really. But anyway, more fake foursomes. Fab foe, as we like to call them. Yeah. And everyone's screaming because some of the press photos have them sitting around an orange amp. It's like, well, but orange didn't even come into existence until 1968. Well, it's like, okay, this is a press photo. And... It is just kind of showing what these guys look like. Yeah, but you have to hope that they get details right, because that's certainly a Beatle thing. Everybody knows the details, and if something is really out of place, it'll be noticeable. I hope this photo didn't come from filming, and I don't think it did, but they did also show their redress of fake names, and that looks pretty accurate to the real building. Well, one can hope. (laughs) Okay. What has come out on YouTube in the last week is a film called Rubber Soul, which I didn't even really know much about. It had played at the South by Southwest Film Festival 10 years ago, but it never got any further release than that. Which is really too bad. Well, we're going to talk about the film next week, but it did sort of bring up some questions and ideas that we wanted to talk about. You know, 1970 and 1980 were really two turning points in John Lennon's life. Yes. John was assassinated at the end of the year, but I mean, even had that not happened, things would have moved in a very different direction in 1981 and the ensuing years. It really is kind of interesting that he did these two big bookend interviews at the decade of the 70s right he hit the decades perfectly didn't he and both years were for him projects that were career changing and he intended them to be that way absolutely so speaking of the interviews there are a couple of coincidences In 1970, Jan Wenner was 24 years old. In 1980, David Sheff was 24 years old. The only thing changing would would be John's age. (laughs) Jan Wenner came about Rolling Stone because he founded it. It's kind of... I'm not sure why Playboy magazine would have given such a big assignment to someone who was just 24 years old and really kind of just out of college. Playboy was commissioned by the magazine and not, you know, arranged by an independent journalist. And David Sheff has since become a fairly well-known figure. His son had a a run-in with narcotics, and there's the Jim Carrey film Beautiful Boy, which is based on David Sheff and David Sheff's life post the Lennon interview. The other thing that's interesting, at least interesting to me, the entirety of the Rolling Stone interview was four and a half hours, and Rolling Stone has released that to us. The whole four hours, yeah. David Sheff interviewed John over several weeks, and there's like 40 hours of tape. But what we have, what's actually come out to the public, is very close in length to what we have from the Rolling Stone interview. It's like, oh, okay, you know. Again, just one of those Lincoln-Kennedy, Kennedy-Lincoln things. (laughs) Right. Well, you have this much time to spend with John. Four hours. (laughs) You know, we'll talk about some of the things in the interview. Both of them spent a fair bit of time going through John Lennon's songs. I mean, Jan Winter didn't have the records in front of him. One afternoon, David Sheff and John apparently just sat in the bathroom going through records. Right. John would point out this and point out that. Now, how accurate John's reminiscences are, (laughs) that is in question. There was an article that came out in Hit Parader 
where John discussed a lot of the songs. But in the Rolling Stone interview, that's basically Jan just kind of calling up song titles. He didn't really kind of go through the catalog. If you read and you listen to what David Chef did, it's not really going through the catalog either. It's kind of, I got this big stack of albums, both Beatles and John Lennon albums, and he just starts pulling albums out almost at random. They're not chronological. They're not in any order it's like well tell me about this and tell me about that right and john was suitably amused by that i believe it's in the david chef interview where you get the controversy over who wrote in my life yeah which may or may not have been settled the statisticians will tell us that we do now know that john did indeed write in my life or at least significantly wrote in my life paul mccartney said he wrote the music john lennon said that paul mccartney wrote only this this section of music So, what are this trio of mathematicians to take there? Well, cutting to the chase, it turns out that Lennon wrote the whole thing. When you do the math by counting the little bits that are unique to the people, the probability that McCartney wrote it was 0.018. That's essentially zero. In other words, this is pretty well definitive. Lennon wrote the music. And in situations like this, you'd better believe the math because it's much more reliable than people's recollections, especially given that they collaborated writing it in the 60s with an incredibly altered mental state ah. due to all the stuff they were ingesting. I so, know, I know uh, what oh. you're saying, yeah. <laughs> Let's start with Playboy magazine. Playboy, of course, was Hugh Hefner's baby from the 50s. Right. Best known for showing the female breast. And Marilyn Monroe in the very first issue of Playboy. And many other up-and-coming folks. (laughs) Did the Beatles have access to it? I mean, of course, they were in Hamburg, so who needed Playboy? But was it available to them uh, in England or in Germany? Yeah, when you read the interview, they're fully aware of what Playboy was, yes. Well, by 64... Well, I mean, if you want to know if they grew up with it, who knows? Grew up in quotation marks, but yes, they, they do yeah. absolutely uh, know what it is. And, and you can get the interview itself through Amazon without having to buy or locate the original issue, by the way. Which I have many copies. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to February 1965. Um, this is a it's quite a nice issue. It's quite short, but we have some nice features in it for this month. We've got the Playboy Jazz winners with some really nice artwork by Richard Fruman, who's the illustrator for the piece. We've got At Home with Kim Novak. We have the Beatles interview as well, which is by Gene Shepard. Um, latest in stereo equipment. And obviously, you can see at the bottom here, we've got articles from uh, Vladimir Nobukov. We've got Ken W. Purdy, Vance Packard, and Donna Michelle revisited. I have many copies of that, and I have several copies of the uh, 1980 interview, which not only features John and Yoko, but has a picture spread with one Barbara Bach. Yes. And Playboy also did an in-depth interview with Alan Klein, which is real interesting. When was that? That was like 71. Very cool. So October the 28th, 1964, Playboy had sent somebody out to interview the Beatles, and that interview would be published in the February 1965 issue. Causing some controversy, Pete Best actually would sue Ringo over a comment. Ringo makes a comment when they're talking about, oh, Pete Best would sometimes be sick. Ringo says that Pete would take these little pills. Right. Implying that Pete was taking drugs and we no doubt is more the opposite way. So he sued him for, and it was settled. Now, while Playboy was certainly a men's magazine, it was entertainment for gentlemen. You know, I kind of wonder why they went that way. I mean, granted, the Beatles were the biggest thing, but you look at like network television in even in October of 1964, while we were in the middle of Beatlemania, you might get an appearance and a little joke on the late night shows or on a game show. But 
it's always seemed a little bit strange to me. A Playboy interview was something serious, you know, Gore Vidal, that kind of thing. I'm not sure why they chose the Beatles. Because it was a popular culture magazine, and the Beatles were huge. The Playboy man was from college age up so they they were interested in the beatles certainly would be interested in an interview with them so i'm not surprised what was surprising to me about the interview was that they were probably like they always were with journalists because you know they talk about this and i mean they joke about sex and they talk about drinking and smoking and all this and i think they thought that it would probably get cut out to some degree that the journalists wouldn't print all that. But it came out. And no one really said anything about it. No, not really. You know, how did Brian quite let this go through? I don't know whether it was by this time they were willing to just let stuff come out. But this is just their first American tour. This is October of 64 with a street date of February, so without early to mid-January 1965. Well, the fact that it didn't have any great impact on their career must mean that Epstein or whoever judged right. I'm not disagreeing with that. I, it just seems kind of an exception to the whole publicity train that he was trying to build up at that point. I mean, it's very much the same four guys that are in Michael Braun's Love Me Do. Right. But the Epstein image was taking hold. You know, the world, or at least certainly the United States, was seeing them as these cute mop tops that worked their way up from poverty into becoming this huge act. And while the Playboy interview doesn't change that view, it doesn't necessarily agree with it completely. Now, the interview itself, I believe, was done in England, wasn't it? Uh, let's see. It was done in October of '64. It was yeah. in Torquay. Following two performances at the ABC Cinema Exeter, the Beatles spoke to Playboy journalist Gene Shepard. For the past two weeks, I have been living with the Beatles, or as they would call it, the Beatles. And I've, I've been in uh, Dundee, Scotland. I've been in Edinburgh. I've been in London where they work, Leeds, Liverpool. I've been in all these various cities on a, on, a whole, on a whole series of one-night stands with the Beatles, living with them, stay, living in their room with them, in their dressing room, riding through the dark countryside, trying to escape the fanatics, and observing England from the other side of the glass. Playboy had sent Gene Shepard over to actually speak with them. So this would have been just after their american tour yeah and then before their you know big christmas run over the holidays so two days after george's gretch fell off the indeed i've gone through and i've looked at the playboy archives you know other than this interview through the 60s there might be a joke here or a reference there but there really wasn't that much other beatles coverage other than this interview coverage an editorial or a, a letter i mean playboy did publish letters and they did talk about current events as such in the magazine they did have to fill right. those pages between the scantily or completely undressed young women yeah although i believe for several years running every year playboy would have this jazz pop poll about musicians mccartney consistently won as a bass player yeah i think that was a little bit later i think that was 67 68 69 you know that sort of period i don't think quite so much pre-rubber soul let's say not probably pre-rubber soul no for sure musically playboy tended to follow hef's tastes and they were much more of a jazz oriented publication you look at the Playboy clubs and who was playing the Playboy clubs. They didn't have pop bands or, or, or you know rock bands in the Playboy clubs. The musicians they had there were the old school jazz type musicians. He certainly leaned that way, although for a few years he had a 
television show called Playboy After Dark. And there were pop musicians that would come in, but there were lots of jazz people too. So a very different world. Yes. And I was way too young to really, really know what's going on. <laughs> when did you first pick up the uh, February 1965 Playboy? Oh, well, you have to understand that my father read Playboy and, and kept them under his bed, which I would sneak out occasionally. So I probably saw it pretty much in real time. Pretty quickly, you found his copy of that issue. <laughs> right. But I started collecting much later. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Incidentally, since we're talking about films and talking about chronological mistakes, one of the few big mistakes they make in I Want to Hold Your Hand, the Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg, Beatlemania film, is they have that issue, the February 65 issue of Playboy, showing up around the time of February 9th. So it's like, oh, well, that's not right. Now, granted, you'd have to be one of us to realize that. <laughs> right, right. But it's, it's still kind of funny. It's like, nope, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, and then we'd have to turn to the person next to us and go, hey, you know what? That's not right. <laughs> exactly. So maybe not quite as bad a thing as having uh, Orange Amps in 1963, but. <laughs> <laughs> right. A couple years later, Jan Wenner decided that there really wasn't any significant rock journalism going on. Yes, he had a good idea. What there was was still largely teenage magazine, 16 magazine, the girls' magazines. And then for the Beatles, there was just lots and lots of big photo spreads of them. Yeah, there were 11 or 12 different teen magazines out and occasionally you'd get a Beatles special, but there wasn't any real journalism. Now, pop hadn't really evolved into more serious rock at that point. But as it did, then the idea that it might be worth covering in a serious way came about. I mean, Rolling Stone really came out of the culture of the Oracle, you know, San Francisco newspaper, you know, the hate. And of course that is where Rolling Stone headquarters was back in the day. It was small at first and it grew. We shipped 40,000 copies wow. of that issue. We got 35,000 back in unopened boxes. The story of how John Lennon came to be on the cover of the first Rolling Stone is actually pretty amusing. So Jan Wenner needed an image for the cover of the first issue of Rolling Stone, November 9th, 1967. He saw a publicity shot of Lennon as private grip weed in Richard Lester's film, How I Won the War. It was a day before deadline. This was the best thing we had on hand. It was incredibly fortuitous, symbolic, and prophetic of the future. Let's see, How I Won the War would have just been coming out about then. Los Angeles Free Press presents a special benefit premiere of the most controversial and talked about anti-war movie of all time, the Richard Lester John Lennon film, How I Won the War. I think it's a very important film, an extremely unusual film. Very excellent. Totally absurd. Attend the benefit premiere Sunday, January 28th at the Fine Arts Theater on Wilshire Boulevard in Beverly Hills. A limited number of seats will be available to the public. Order your tickets now, $5 each. All proceeds to the Los Angeles Free Clinic. Send your order with cash or check in the stamped self-addressed envelope to How I Won the War, care of KRLA Pasadena. November 9th, street date. So, I mean, again, it was probably out two to three weeks before that. You know, again, given the, it was published on a newspaper press and was uh, not what you'd expect it to be. Certainly not what it is if you... Well, for those of us who still know what Rolling Stone looks like these days. It was a small venture because, you know, these days, or, or even when Epstein was alive, there would have been like, well, you just can't use that picture without permission to sell your newspaper. But he did, and he, he did it a bunch of times. No one came about him saying, hey, hey, don't do that. Nope, not at all. And no one tried to sue him. And then we have Rolling Stone to thank, at least in part, for... Linda McCartney's photographic career. They utilized a lot of her photographs. Things grew, and Jan Wenner, who, a fellow who decided he was going to start a music newspaper. What was that? What came was that? over, that, and it turned out to be Rolling Stone. He came over and said, well, a friend, somebody at Electra 
told me that you had a lot of good pictures of musicians. Can I look through them? And I, w I just had piles of photographs all over my apartment because I, I wasn't, well, I'm not an ordered person. So there were just prints like that. So he went through them and he walked out with a stack like that. You know, Aretha Franklin, as you said, Cream, Hendrix, Stevie Winwood, I mean, everything. He said, and then he, he went off and started his newspaper. So you were literally the first photographer yeah. for the Rolling Stones. Then I kept doing stuff for Rolling Stones because I became a freelance photographer. I did stuff for Life magazine and oh, Mademoiselle. Yeah. And Tom, it became, I'm talking about a lot of years went by. And I it, it was that peak when I thought, I better get an agent. This is too hard, you know. And I still didn't have a studio because I, I was well into natural light. Natural people and natural light. So um, it just grew from there. It's one thing upon another, although, I mean, you know, granted, she was around and recognized as a rock photographer. She had gotten herself all the way to the Sgt. Pepper release party. And she was photographing major artists, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and, and Hendrix. And, and the Doors. Some iconic photographs of the Rolling Stones. It is Rolling Stone that we can thank for at least bringing a lot of those photos out. They might have just been photos sitting there had Rolling Stone not brought them out to the public. And Rolling Stone has always had a strong relationship with its photographers. Annie Leibovitz, who was actually a very young photographer when the Lennon Remembers interview was done. Right. The thing which really was to bring Rolling Stone to John Lennon's attention was Rolling Stone number 22, November 23rd, 1968. Jan Wenner had heard about the two virgins kerfuffle. And so the editor, Ralph Gleason, called up Derek Taylor and said, hey, we'll publish those photos in full. And it would be beneficial for them both because controversy was going to sell Rolling Stone. And that was quite a move understand that the frontal picture was within the magazine itself but the rear view was on the front cover they're kind of seated in so you can't really see anything on the cover Jan winner's comment at the time was uh, print a famous foreskin and the world will be the path to your door <laughs> slightly vulgar but it's also just amusing enough and and john lennon would have loved that statement and he probably <laughs> did love that statement yeah now, for us, looking back at this time, Winner was clearly a Lennon fan, much more than he was a McCartney fan, and that would be reflected really throughout the 70s in the way Rolling Stone looked at Paul. Funny that he kind of used Linda and then kind of went, well, for me, Paul. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, you, you put those things together, it's like, well, wait a minute. You, you, the Rolling Stone review of Ram was like, he just trashed it, and for no good reason. You know, at first you think, oh, really, would somebody be that childish? But then you find out that he basically has kept the monkeys from being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We can't say that he has continued to do that because he is no longer part of the board which decides it but he he does still play a big role in the rock and roll hall of fame organization well, i was just pointing that out as, as a, a illustration of his pettiness given the way john was moving you know as the beatles were dissolving john was kind of making friends with john winter it was rolling stone who would provide the writers and the transcribers who would do the dialogue for the Get Back book, the original Get Back book. Right. Books. Not the Peter Jackson version of the Get Back book. And we have those writers to thank for basically the entire bootleg industry of the 1970s. <laughs> they were able to squirrel away copies of lots and lots of Get Back tapes. <laughs> so the Black Album and sort of all of the early descendants of the Get Back tapes. Yeah, they can be sourced directly to Jonathan Cotton, the Rolling Stone journalists who were working for Apple for a while. So basically Rolling Stone sucked off the Beatles for a long time. <laughs> Don't forget the ads in the back of the Rolling Stone were how most people were to go and buy their bootlegs. 
Then in December of 1969, Rolling Stone declared John Lennon the man of the year. Although British television did him one better by calling him the man of the decade. Right. Well, he clearly was the man. So. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no doubt that Winner was a fan of Lennon, maybe too much. <laughs> it's certainly all right to be a fan of John Lennon. I mean, we all are fans of John Lennon, but I think it certainly hurt the objectivity of the magazine back in those days. But then again, was objectivity even a concern? The Beatles would break up, John and Yoko would get married, and the whole Arthur Janoff thing uh, came into being. You know, there's one quote that you made note of. Wetter says, it has become impossible to speak of John without at once speaking of Yoko, truly the fifth Beatle, in an era when it sometimes appears that there are no longer even four Beatles. I think, really? You're going to call Yoko the fifth Beatle? Was he just parroting back something that John might have said to him? Don't care. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at some point, as a journalist, you have to go, Okay, a bit much. She in no way was a fifth Beatle. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. As John and Yoko were getting ready to come to the States for their primal therapy in Los Angeles, they wrote Jan Winter and said, hey, we're going to come by. I think at that point they were kind of proselytizing the primal scream that wasn't all they were doing, but that was certainly one of the things they were doing at the time. They certainly pitched the whole thing to him, gave him the book, and told him how much it had affected them. John inscribed the book, Dear Jan, after many years of searching, tobacco, pot, acid, meditation, brown rice, you name it, I am finally on the road to freedom and being real and straight, in all caps. I hope this book helps you as much as it did for Yoko and me. I'll tell you the true story when we're finished. So that is certainly what their bag was at the time, to borrow their own term for it. Right. There's also, you know, the story around this time that John and Yoko went to see Let It Be in a theater with Winter. And the story goes that he kind of cried after it was all over. And I know he was raw and vulnerable at that point but you know just based on how winter went from there i just think he was not a good man for john to be in the hands of unfortunately yanov or winter or both certainly winter i still don't really think that jan winter was a sycophant i think he was a fan and probably overly a fan it's the same kind of adoration which john would eat up from alan klein okay and alan klein certainly is considered (laughs) an evil character in this story so (laughs) maybe we should say that he very clearly had some objective in getting closer to john lennon of course he was trying to make rolling stone a thing and being buddies with a beetle would certainly help that Right. He could have been another magic Alex, you know, hanging around for what what it does for him. I won't disagree with that, you know, particularly with this magazine, which really at this time was kind of just hanging on. It wasn't a big success. You know, it was making a little bit of money, but just a little bit of money. Oh, yeah. It took a while for it to become Rolling Stone. But the interview... And the news it caused, you know, outside of what it did personally within the band, but the news that it caused, and then the subsequent publishing of a book really moved Rolling Stone along quite a lot. Let's go back just briefly. So so after that trip to San Francisco, they went to Los Angeles, they did their thing with the primal. And then they went back and they recorded Plastic on Omand. Right. John and Yoko were both very raw, very filled with the emotions of the time. And they would then go back in December and sit down in the paneled boardroom of Alan Klein, as it's described. Uh, Right. John and Yoko and Jan Winter sat down for this four-hour interview. I don't think Winter tricked him into it. 
I don't think so either. I mean, you, you know, know, John certainly wanted to do it. I mean, it yes. was John taking advantage of it as much as John Winter was. It was really the first opportunity for John to break the myth, which is what he wanted to do. The thing about either reading or listening to the interview in its entirety, John is certainly out there breaking the myth, but he also clearly still even has admiration for what they did. Yeah, for sure. But at that time, for the most part, the songwriting team of Lennon McCartney had just been wonderful and still this shocking breakup. I mean, they were still churning out records and everything was working just fine. So it really was a myth to kind of expose a lot of what he saw as the truth, but that didn't mean he wasn't proud of what he'd done. Uh, He's very much the angry young man, although... You know, you look at John in that, you know, late 64, 65 Playboy interview. He's not that far removed from that guy in the Rolling Stone interview. He's just angrier. And there's no McCartney around to go, do we really have to do this now, Mr. Lennon? You put Get Back in the middle of there. Now that we've seen the full cut of Get Back, it's interesting. I will say that John is very different in his attitude during Get Back and talking to Jan Winter here. Although there is a, a span of two years. Uh, this is true. I mean, with you know, January 69 to December of 1970s. Right. And in 69, he had yet to learn that McCartney was buying up more shares. However it was, he felt betrayed. <laughs> and there's a whole lot of stuff that's going to go on to get him to that really anger guy. The interview came out on the 21st of January and the 4th of February, 1971. We got a really interesting view of Paul reading the interview in Alan Cozen's book. Right. It was the interview where he goes, oh, God, he's got me completely. I'm a turd. That interview had a big impact on Paul. Well, especially because we know that he was sitting there very upset over what Alan Klein was whispering in John's ear about Paul and Linda. So, you know, I don't know if Jan Winter would have been egging them on, but he certainly did not deny any of that. No. As a journalist or as somebody who's looking to an agenda, he must have just been crapping his pants (laughs) to hear John saying all this stuff and he's getting it all down. He had to have recognized how this interview was going to hit. And I think in the ensuing years, Jan Winter is being a little disingenuous. We got a quote here. He says, I had an awkward relationship with Paul for years because I was the handmaiden to this last testament of John's. I'm sure John would have liked to take back some of what he said. He started calling the interview Lennon Regrets, but it was all truth, his truth. And to read it is to know it and to know John Lennon. Really, Jan? (laughs) Right. There's a book written by Joe Hagen about Winter uh, called Sticky Fingers. The the quote from it is, in 1974, Winter received a mysterious cream-colored envelope in the mail care of Johan Wiener. Inside was a single Polaroid picture of John Lennon and Paul McCartney hanging out in a garden, on a garden patio with friends. Linda McCartney holding a pool stick, Keith Moon in shorts, and Roman sandals, and May Pang, Lennon's then lover, holding the McCartney's daughter, Mary, on her lap on the white strip. Below the image, dated Palm Sunday 1974, was the message, How do you sleep? (laughs) The interview, as you noted, was published as Lennon remembers as a book, and John wasn't real happy with it. His attitude was that he didn't realize that John was going to make money that way uh, with the interview. And he probably, at that point, had already begun to hear back from people. Really, John? (laughs) He knew what he was doing. It must have struck much harder. I mean, I certainly read it before I'd heard the whole thing, before they released the whole thing. But it is very different to hear John saying all these things than it reads in cold black print. Yeah. So John's response to that was, it's just me shooting my mouth off. I'll say anything. I can't even remember it. Which 
Well, we know that is the truth as well. <laughs> right. John eventually got over at least some of his anger about Jan making money off of him. And, uh, you know, they stayed acquaintances slash friends through the 70s. Although we will note that Rolling Stone was not the publication that John called for his big interview as Double Fantasy was starting to become an idea and then eventually came out onto the market. (laughs) Right. He didn't want to have another book come out. (laughs) Although he would. (laughs) And it would have been a book anyway. Yeah. By that time, hadn't Rolling Stone moved to New York? They moved to New York in the mid to late 70s. Yes. So it actually would have been easier to do. I don't know if Playboy was selected or if they had somehow come up with David Chef or I'm not sure exactly how they got to David Chef as the one who was going to do this interview with them in 1980. Yeah, I have that book. Does it credit Playboy? Uh, It does credit Playboy. Does it? Okay, so maybe they still own it. The original version, the paperback and the hardback were out on Playboy Press as well. Yeah, well then. I mean, later on, it it came out separately, so Chef clearly owns it. I'm not sure what the deal was. Right. As far as the life of John Lennon goes, he'd been through everything that he went through in the 70s. He had been witnessing the birth of Sean and then Sean growing up, and so Sean was five or six and you know he he decided it's at this time that i can get back in the public eye and that at least publicly is why he announced that he was coming back to tell us a story i had one real question chef wrote that john talked baby talk tickled sean threw him in the air slipped him between his knees and prompted him with spontaneous learning games Sean was five years old at that point. Would you be talking baby talk to your five-year-old? We know how John and Sean talk because we have at least bits and pieces of that on tape. Right. The famous one, the the whole yellow submarine thing, it's like he's certainly not talking to him like you would talk to even a young adult. He's talking (laughs) to him as you would talk to a kindergarten-aged child. Baby talk? Probably not. Right. That's my point. It's this picture that he paints. Talked baby talk, tickled him, threw him in the air. It's like a baby. Some people want to say that the 1980 interview and David Chef were all a giant publicity campaign. But, I mean, as we kind of said, that was the deal with Lennon Remembers as well. It was all to get a story out there in a certain way. Right. There's still a lot of people who don't want to believe that the whole house husband thing was anywhere near reality. And those folks will say, oh, yeah, they did this big interview to put this story out there. And oh, it's not real. And I mean, you know, we certainly know aspects of it aren't real. We know the guitar was not hung up on the wall. Maybe a guitar was hung up on the wall. But we know that John was at least trying to write through those years. Right. Okay, so so really my point is that's not John trying to make something up. That's David Chef making something up. If they had kind of come to this, oh, here's how we want to be presented. But I don't think that you can necessarily even say that. First off, who's going to put on this act for three weeks straight? If they were actually trying to puff up their own image i don't think you can do that for three weeks straight certainly not over the number of words which john tells to david chef the story begins with david chef says that he had been trying to to reach the lennons for a long time and then one day he got a phone call from somebody that asked when i was born and where i was born then three or four days later yoko ono called and said to meet in new york so they met in the studio uh And thus began the agreement which would lead to the Playboy interview. So what do you think about the Playboy interview? Now, I I have to admit, I have a big soft spot for the Playboy interview. The book-length version of that was uh, a very 
important piece of my coming into the world of Beelmania. Uh. <laughs> I was just fascinated by that, the book version of it. And much like you, that 1980 copy of Playboy was to be the first issue of Playboy that I ever bought. And why the guy at the uh, Stop and Go sold it to me, maybe he took pity on me. I'll never know. Right. So that was your gateway drug, huh? I've always liked the interview, particularly because of the going through a lot of the songs and his memories of them. Let me ask you about the music. What an opportunity this is for us to ask you about what John Lennon said to you about, I think, one of the great songs of all time, Eleanor Rigby, and um, how he and Paul worked on that song. Part of it we worked on together, the lyrics, too, if you want to get into that song, because the he had the first lines about um, Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice from the church when there's nobody there. And we worked in a room together on it somewhere to finish off a verse and a bit, and then the rest of it was finished off in the studio with me sitting at the table. Would he, would he envision a theme? This is about loneliness and... Oh, he had the whole thing about uh, Eleanor Rigby sits in the rice of the church with the red in his bin. What, what's the next one? Lives in a dream. I don't know if he had lives Wait. in a dream. He only, he only had the first verse. He didn't have the middle eight. Oh, look at all the lonely people. That bit, that bit, which uh -huh. was sort of... And they, they settled on that. He and George Harrison were settling on that as I left the room. And I turned around and said, that's it. David, how, how fortunate you were there to tell him his own line. <laughs> yeah. Did I get it right? That's the thing about Eleanor Rigby. sits in the church of the Yeah, that's right. Didn't I get it right? Lives in a dream? I think so, yeah. yeah I think so. It of course, became particularly poignant when he was murdered. That's part of the deal is, as with Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey, we cannot separate it from what was to happen. Right. Yeah, you can't. So I, I like the interview. And what was it called? A Heart Play? It was part of it was released on. Yeah, the, the, the LP, which came out between Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey, which was about 42 minutes of uh, clips from Chef. These conversations with John and Yoko took place in the late summer and the fall of 1980. The background noises set the scenes. Early morning talks in the Lennon kitchen with John running back and forth making tea. Afternoon walks along Central Park West. Late nights in the recording studio, evenings sitting at a sidewalk cafe in the rain. The recordings were made for a documentary on the Lennons and for the Playboy interview. Listen. And there's this part where he talked about getting through the 70s. Was it a, was it a drag? We made it. There was a optimism going forward. It was a good interview, regardless of how much salesmanship was involved in, in what he was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly an aspect of that in that interview. Yeah, right. But, I mean, again, as we were saying, there was an aspect of that in Lennon Remembers. You're selling the product, pushing your product. As much as I will take the John and Yoko side, the more I have read that interview, the more I'm not so sure that they would have stayed married that much longer into the 80s. They were certainly going in different directions to a certain extent at that point. Hmm. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, that's, it's all supposition, but... Yeah, I, I just think that the importance of Sean would have certainly... He wouldn't have done what he did with Julian. I think he would have been there as a father to Sean, but I don't know if they stay married just because of that. There are some people who say, oh, what are you talking about? But, you know, there, there's bits and pieces there. Listen for yourself. <laughs> it is also interesting how John would view these interviews. In 1980, he also spoke with Rolling Stone in a much briefer interview. And what he says is that, what I realized when I read Lennon Remembers, or the new Playboy interview, was that I'm always complaining about how hard it is to write or how much I suffer when I'm writing, that almost every song I've ever written has been absolute torture. That's just him being kind of hyperbolic, because but he has his stories across the universe. It came real easy. You know? <laughs> this is true as well. But uh, I mean, and he, and he has stuff that he says that he just tossed off, you know, Mr. Kite. Mr. Kite, Tomorrow Never Knows, those lyrics were just taken from something else. Uh, there are certainly songs that he 
probably suffered through, you can listen to the development of Strawberry Fields on tape and see that you know, he worked really, really hard on that one many, many times. I find it interesting that he talks about going back and looking at both the Lennon Remembers and, and the Playboy interview, which at that point was, you know, a couple months old to him, although he they did probably proof it, and, and that's what he's talking about. But, of course, we know that John Lennon was John Lennon's biggest fan. <laughs> and yeah. So, I, you know, maybe it shouldn't surprise me that he would pull these things off the shelf occasionally. And, oh, yeah, well, what the hell was I saying there? Yeah. He talks about this uh, Zen story Yoko told him. And this story actually speaks to me very much. He says, I think I might have told it in a letter remembers paper forgets. King sends his messenger to an artist to request a painting. And he paid the artist the money. And the painter said, okay, come back. So a year goes by, and the messenger comes back and tells him King's waiting for his painting. And the painter says, oh, hold on. And he whips it off right in front of him and says, here. The messenger says, what's this? The king paid you 20000 bucks for this? You knock it off in five minutes? And the painter replies, yeah, but I spent 10 years thinking about it. And then Lennon says, and there's no way I could have written double fantasy songs without those five years. And we can see that now that we have a healthy chunk of John's home demos. He was there writing, washing the wheels and starting over through that entire five years. My life. Take it, it's mine to give Take it and let me live In you My life Take it, it's yours Do what you will I dedicate it To you His thing was he, he never finished him, really. He mentioned it several times about his advice to George, which was, you know, once you start something, finish it. Because if you don't finish it right then, you, you never will. And I think he had a whole bunch of stuff. He never finished anything until there came this point where he's like, okay, I'm going to finish these songs. And that's when it all kind of came together. He didn't have Paul McCartney there saying, let's go into the studio. Right. Or, so, well, that's a nice verse. I've got a bridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, 
Again, we will talk about the the Playboy interview itself next week. But to kind of close up this bit on David Sheff, David Sheff has been contracted to write the, quote, definitive, unquote, biography of Yoko Ono. We know that David Sheff was certainly friendly. I don't know if, if he would call himself friends with Yoko, but that is also kind of interesting. His wife, uh, Victoria Sheff, is really the one who would reveal the whole Fred Seaman and Project Walrus thing to the world. So, I mean, they too are tied up in the business of the Lennons. He's written many other things, but as we were saying with Jan Wenner, David Sheff is in the John Lennon and Yoko Ono business even to this day. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's something that you need to take into consideration as you you know, read through the various interviews or the various comments that they have through the years. Exactly. As you said, there is nothing wrong with it. If you did the big John Lennon interview at the end of his life, why wouldn't 30 years later you're looking for a new project? You think, well, I could do this. You know, that's not being in someone's pocket. That's coming up with a new project. Now he's going to have to come up with something that Madeline Boccaro didn't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, because he's not allowed to just rewrite her book. <laughs> anyway. All right. So, as I say, the film Rubber Soul, which is a... I wouldn't call it fictionalized because it is actually using dialogue from these two interviews, but it is a representation of them. It personalizes the, the words. That is our topic for next week. If you're looking for that film, it has just been released on YouTube. So yeah. it is worth following and making up your own opinion before you hear us talk about it. Right. Then you can phone in. <laughs> Very good. So we will be back with that next week next week see you then bye subscribe to when they was fab on itunes podbean stitcher or wherever finer podcasts are found please join our facebook group and we could be reached at when they was fab and on gmail the opening theme was written produced and recorded by jay young kim beaster famine studios san francisco California. In August of 1980, David Sheff flew to New York for maybe the biggest magazine assignment there was at that point. He was going to interview John Lennon and Yoko Ono for Playboy. Set the scene for us. They were arguably the most uh, famous couple in the world then, weren't they? They were, and it was sort of an extraordinary time because they sort of disappeared. Uh, I guess after John released the uh, rock and roll albums, you know, as far as we knew, the public knew, the fans knew, he was gone. And, and uh, five years, and so there was all this mystery and all these questions. They were working on the, the Double Fantasy and Milk and Honey albums, right? That's right. So what was that first meeting like? I bet you recall it. It was pretty surreal. I mean, I, I had been trying to get to him for a long time. My, my editor, you know, sort of set me off on this task. And I said, of course, you know, cocky 24 years old, I said, um, sure, no problem. And, of course, it was, it was almost impossible. But I sent letters to you know, people in the music business. Um, and one day I got a phone call from somebody, and he asked me when I was born and where I was born. And, you know, three or four days later, I got a call. Someone said, uh, you know, Yoko Ono wanted to meet me in New York. Uh, I got on a plane. And the next day, I was uh, having coffee with John Lennon. What, was she interested in your astrological sign or something when she asked? I think it was my numerology. Apparently, my numbers were right. In fact, I think I was told later that my number was nine, which is the same number as John's. Free. i tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, 
but the, the scrape in the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned out nice again. 